0: In Hinduism, sex has a place that's unparalleled in other world religions. Hello, I'm Rachel Kahn, and this is The Ark. Not only are Hindu divinities displayed voluptuously, but the great god Vishnu is sometimes shown as half himself and half the goddess Parvati, his wife. What does this mean? Is the message homosexual, androgynous, or heterosexual? And do goddesses mean women are liberated in India? Wendy Doniger holds the Merce Eliade Chair in Religious History
1: at the University of Chicago. Shiva and Parvati, I suppose, are the ones who are primarily identified with sexual imagery, um, even in their symbolic forms, the lingam, which is the symbol of the male organ, which is always depicted with the yoni, which is the symbol of the female organ. So in that sense, The iconic, the starkest iconic form is is about nothing but generation, pro-generation. But they're also... more humanly and more anthropomorphically sexual aspects of Shiva and Parvati. The marriage of Shiva and Parvati is depicted in myth and in sculpture. Uh, and just simply the way that the, the bodies of women are presented um, on Hindu temples as as very erotic and very fertile. And those two are not always separate. They are both beautiful and they're also mother figures.
0: That was probably one of the reasons so many people
1: hot-footed it to India, to have a
0: look at those images themselves. Especially the Victorian British, of course. Indeed. Well, the Kama Sutra is also well known in the West. Uh, there are sometimes uh, rather bolderized versions of it in English. What sort of role did it play in Hinduism?
1: Kama Sutra is actually wrongly known in the West. Most people who know anything about it at all think it's about the positions in sexual intercourse and lots of jokes about all the positions in the Kama Sutra. Kama Sutra is a a book of seven volumes, um, seven chapters, if you will, only one of which has anything to do with the sexual positions. And it's more generally about eroticism in a much broader sense. It's about sensuality. It's about the good life, about music and dance and the arts and sex being a very important part, perhaps the most important part, according to the Kama Sutra, of sensuality. But it's really not about blatant physical acts. It's about a world of eroticism. Sounds like we missed out on a
0: lot by having those uh, small one-volume versions. It's a great book. It really is. Now, why 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 do you think sexuality figured prominently in the tradition in the first place?
1: I think the real question is why doesn't sexuality figure more prominently in our tradition? Um, It is, after all, one of the basic human drives, and it is celebrated in a number of religions. So it's not so much why it's in Hinduism, but I think why the Hindus do it best, why um, the images um, and the uses of sexual stories in Hinduism are particularly wonderful and therefore particularly well-known. There are other Uh, erotic books besides the Kama Sutra, but they just can't hold a candle to it. So there's just something about the vitality and the human drive in Hinduism, in one branch of Hinduism, I think dominant branch of Hinduism, which has always celebrated life in all of its forms, of which sexuality is simply one of the most interesting to us because it isn't highlighted in our religion so much. Now,
0: sexuality has a downside, and that is lust. And most cultures have recognized that that can be a problem because it's kind of indiscriminate sexuality. And it's a theme in the great. Indian epic, the Mahabharata. What are some of the instances that you can tell us about where lust appears?
1: When I said how important sexuality is in Hinduism, I was careful to say in part of Hinduism, because there is also a very ancient and very important branch of Hinduism starting from the Upanishads in the 6th century BCE which worries about lust as much as any religion ever has. Um, it is a, an ascetic tradition. It's a renunciant tradition. It is anti-woman. It is anti-sex. It is anti-family. It looks upon lust as one of the great barriers to spiritual realization. And therefore, you have a very powerful literature right through to the present day in India, which is ashamed of the Kama Sutra and which is um, against sensuality in any form, fears it and avoids it in any way. So that's also there. So the stories that you get in a text such as the Ramayana or the Mahabharata, the two great Sanskrit poems of the ancient period, reflect both of those traditions. They tell you of a world where kings are getting involved with not only human women but celestial women of all sorts and getting into a lot of trouble because of it suffering for their lust, being destroyed by it in many instances. The Kama Sutra itself tells a lot of stories of people who are overpowered by lust and whose lives were destroyed by it and it warns you that one reason to read the Kama Sutra is to make sure that you can control your own sexuality so that it has its rightful place in your life and and doesn't ruin you and then they tell the stories of the Mahabharata of how Indra fell in love with Ahalya who was a married woman and she was a good woman, and she wouldn't sleep with anyone but her husband, so he took the form of her husband. She either did or did not recognize him. There's a lot of different variants of this story, and you can read it one way, you can read it another. Let's say, to give her the benefit of the doubt, that she thought it really was her husband. In any case, she certainly slept with him, and her husband found out and cursed her to turn to stone In parts of India today, when women get married, before the marriage ceremony, they put their foot on a black stone and promise never to be like Ahalya, so she's a negative image. And Indra, for his part, was cursed to have vaginas all over his body, which embarrassed him greatly. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Well, it was so embarrassing that, that at his fervent request, they they modified the curse and it was changed into eyes all over his body. So he has a thousand eyes. So that story is referred to in the Kama Sutra. How
0: much do these stories actually reflect the structure of society in antiquity?
1: The stories, of course, are fantastic. No one, I don't think Indra ever took the form of another man and so forth, but the the structure of the story, the social structure of sexual life is correctly mirrored in the story, which is that there was an enormous premium put on women's chastity. It was believed that if a married woman was unfaithful to her husband, All sorts of terrible things happened to him. She protected him with her chastity. And so there are stories of a woman who was so chaste that she saved her husband's life when the God of death came to take him away. She swore by the fact that she'd never looked at another man that her husband must not die and he didn't die. So there are positive stories about what a chaste woman can do for her husband. And then there are the negative stories about what happens to a man whose wife is unfaithful. So women absolutely were guarded extremely closely. They were watched, they were locked up and so forth. Men on the other hand, if they could afford them, could have several wives. And if they committed adultery, that was all right. The definition of adultery, that is to say the wrong kind of sex for a man, was to have sex with a woman who was married to another man. It was an offense against the woman's husband, but he was not offending his wife if he had sex with another woman. If she she was free, that was just fine. Why am I not surprised? Well, one of the other images
0: in Hinduism that is certainly unique to it, I think, is that gods appear as both male and female. Now, tell me about that. What is that actually signifying?
1: There are a lot of interesting stories of gods who change from male to female and back to male. There are also some stories about human men of magical powers who are cursed to become females and then blessed to turn back into men again. And I think in some ways those are stories about bisexuality. Those are fantasies that a man could in fact, under some circumstances, have sex with another man if he were changed into a woman. There are no myths of actual overt homosexuality, either male or female. But there are these stories where people change sex and then have another kind of a sexual experience and change back again. What is different, however, in the divine realm is that Shiva himself is said to be half male, half female. Um, He is said to have his wife Parvati as the other half of his body And it's often depicted graphically, vertically, that is to say the left side of his body has a breast and a beautiful swelling hip, and the right side of his body is a male chest and a male hip and so forth. Um, And this is depicted in paintings as well as in sculptures as one of the most interesting and uh, very pervasive art form.
0: Wouldn't that signify perhaps that men and women belong together?
1: Certainly it signifies that men and women belong together, and then on a spiritual level it implies that God himself is both male and female, which is in a way what is signified by the image of the lingam and the yoni, that together that's the image of God, the lingam and the yoni. God is not simply the lingam or, nor simply the yoni, although, of course... Shiva is worshipped separately as male, and the lingam is worshipped separately, and the yoni is worshipped, and the goddess is worshipped separately. But there is this conjoint image of Shiva as the androgyne, which implies that God's divinity pervades gender categories, um, goes beyond them and combines them all in himself. I think it's more a statement of the nature of the world and of God in the world than it is a statement, as in some of the Jungian or even lately feminist or queer studies and gay studies people, that we are all androgynes, that men have women in them and women have men, which may very well be true, but that's, I think, not what the Hindu image is about. I think they think that men are men and women are women and that they are not half and half, but God is half and half.
0: So when a male god becomes a woman, or a male person in a story becomes a woman, does he become a woman entirely in his mind and
1: in his body, or is it just in the body? There are many stories over many centuries. Um, One story in particular is retold over many centuries, the story of how a king named Elah uh, stumbled into a magic forest where everything was cursed, and it is a curse in this text, to become a woman, and he became Elah with a long A, which uh, designates a woman. So that's told again and again. The forest into which he stumbled was already cursed by Parvati. Parvati, the wife of Shiva, who once had been making love with Shiva when some boys stumbled into the forest and saw them there. And she was appalled to be viewed in her sexuality and her nakedness by men. And so she put a curse on the forest that anyone who came into the forest male would immediately turn to female. Then this poor guy, Ila, stumbles into the forest and becomes a woman. And the story is retold in various ways. And sometimes the woman that he becomes forgets that she was ever a man. So she's entirely gendered female. But in some stories where, for instance, the god Vishnu turns into a woman, he both does and does not remember that he's Vishnu. And when in one story he's actually attacked by Shiva, it's not clear whether they are conscious that they are two male gods. So those texts, I think, come much closer to the line of imagining what we would think of as a homosexual experience, that is to say, the consciousness of a male personality in a body that is female and so forth. So sometimes Hinduism does mix up those lines of mental and physical gender. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it just says when she was a woman, she forgot she was a man, she was entirely a woman. So Wendy, in this tradition,
0: which has God as both male and female, and which is quite free and open in expressing its sexuality, why do women come off
1: as inferior? Why are they the curse? I'm always surprised that feminists in particular, and people in general, think that a country that worships a female divinity would be good to women. It's just the opposite. The more powerful women are deemed to be, they have something called Shakti, which is a feminine power. When men think of women as being powerful, of being embodiments of a kind of a goddess, Well, they're scared of them. You'd better lock them up. What if they also became lawyers and politicians? The world would not be a safe place. So it's precisely the recognition of a female divinity or a divine female power, whichever way you want to think of it, that leads to a totally repressive legal system when it comes to women and the keeping of women down, of keeping them locked up and so forth. I'm always surprised that feminists think that goddesses would be good for women. In one of the few countries we know where goddesses are widely worshipped, uh, women have a very rough time of it to this day.
0: Wendy Doniger holds the Merce Eliade Chair in Religious History at the University of Chicago.